Hello and welcome to episode 64 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark, and coming up on today's episode, we're going to be talking music, because I'm joined by Matt Davis, the singer of the British band Funeral for a Friend. Now, if anyone out there has listened to Mark and Me before, or you've heard Skip to the End, or you know me personally, you will know just how important Funeral for a Friend are to me. During my days at university, I saw this band live more than any other band. I think Casually Dressed and Deep in Conversation was one of my most listened to albums, and for me one of the best debuts in British music history. I really do see it as that great from start to finish. There's no bad tracks, and it's an absolute awesome, awesome album. A great live band, and I've interviewed Matt previously on Skip to the End before we decided to do solo interviews on Mark and Me, so go and check that out. But I'm absolutely thrilled that you've joined me on today's episode. And for someone that 10 years ago, if you had told me I'd be interviewing Matt, I wouldn't believe you. So it's it's a really important episode for me personally. And I love the interview and it's got a great story behind it. So I'm really looking forward to you guys out there listening to it soon. Now, just before we get there in true typical Mark and me fashion, you know the score by now. I want to talk about the last episode. So I was joined by the actor Ron Perlman. Yes, Many people probably didn't believe it when I put out the clues and said that Ron Perlman's joining me, but he did. Hellboy himself came on Mark and Me. And as always, you guys proved me wrong. The response was absolutely huge. I thought it would do well, but right now as I sit here, it's my most listened to episode. And again, I saw people sharing it, telling their friends about it, tagging in their friends. And for me, that's the ultimate compliment. It doesn't get better than people asking other people to listen to this episode. It means I'm doing something right. So thank you for all taking the time to listen, and more importantly, thank for taking the time to share it on your networks or your social medias, or just asking someone to listen to it, because word of mouth is huge and it means so, so much. But let's get back into today's episode. As I said, Funeral for a Friend are one of my most listened to bands. I put them up there with the likes of Refused, Thrice, Deftones, Biffy Clyro. They're that good, one of the best British bands I've ever seen. And unfortunately, they did split up. But Matt was still very accommodating with his time and gave me an interview I'll never forget. So let's get to it. Here's my interview with me and Matt, the singer of the band Funeral for a Friend. So Matt, thanks for joining me today on the Mark and Me podcast. Uh, thank you very much for having me. <laughs> it's It's been about two years, I think, that we've uh, last spoke and I think quite a lot's changed. But what I want to do now for the listeners that are first tuning into you on Mark and Me... I want to go right back to the start. So when you're growing up, what are those kind of albums that you were listening to that made you want to actually be a singer in a band? I'll, I'll be honest. I don't think, this is the weird thing, I don't think I ever really wanted to be a singer <laughs> in a band. Weirdly, it's strange. This, is my, this might come across as, as, as very weird. I just, you know, my first love when I got into music when I was very young, my, my dad was a bass player. So for me, growing up with him and his friends... Uh, over the house jamming you know used to play covers and learn covers and stuff so the guitar as an instrument was something that I was I think more um, organically drawn to than the idea of say of actually being like a, a vocalist or a singer I mean you kind of I, you know I, I used to sing along to all those records I mean like my dad loved the Beatles so for me my first musical love was the Beatles and I very much when I was very young wanted desperately to be John Lennon. So for the longest time, I just wanted to kind of do that. I mean, I just wanted to kind of play guitar, learn how to play guitar, 
and the singing thing was like a byproduct of that. It was like the secondary thing because that's what I associated. I mean, I was enamored by the guitar, but there he was also singing. So I just kind of, you know, that's kind of what I emulated. I think when I got into my teenage years, properly into my teenage years, and I discovered punk rock and and and, and that kind of stuff, and I had lots of mates. I had mates in school who who had quite unique, varied record collections, so we would, like, swap tapes of, like, you know, everything from Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, Nine Inch Nails, Gorilla Biscuits, Faith No More, everything and anything, Far Quicksand, all these bands that, that we were devouring. And, and I just wanted to kind of be in a band and do, like, play, you know, play guitar. So that was, like, my... That was, like, my early early thing. And, um, and then, because, I guess, nobody really wanted to sing when I kind of started doing my kind of like school band things I ended up just kind of going along doing stuff on the microphone because that's kind of what it felt I should be doing so I never really realized that I could sing until until people started telling me that I was that I sounded half decent <laughs> so so when you were growing up obviously having the Beatles as an influence from your dad is is the kind of textbook isn't it you, you couldn't be more grateful you were then listening to these albums of all the classic bands like you said a lot of the grunge bands and stuff you then went and formed a band while you were at school were you doing like covers like every kid at school or were you trying to write your own music I, I think you kind of I mean I used to learn, I mean, obviously I learned how to play guitar by learning other bands songs everything from the beatles up to you know trying to learn pick apart the guitar parts to uh, generate a bad religion um to trying to learn how to play um even flow by pearl jam all these little things i didn't care i mean i just wanted to learn how to play this instrument but you know i mean for me you know those re- those records were just were, were spectacular kind of awakenings really i mean it kind of as you're learning um you're discovering this music it just it was like a bomb going off in, in your head thinking you know this these are bands that you could be doing stuff and because you do you learned their material i think very early on it kind of um engaged me in a way i think because i think in a way in a way because of you know the way my dad was with stuff he was very much wanted to be a professional musician as well, and he would write his own songs. I mean, you'd demo them with his friends, and as well as doing this. So that influence was was around me as well. So around that time, the notion of writing your own songs just seemed to, you know, be quite natural. I think very early on, I focused more on doing that than I did on just trying to do a Pearl Jam or a Bad Religion or a Gorilla Biscuits or a Youth Today kind of cover band. So yeah, you know, that kind of. I feel like I almost kind of like skipped that we almost kind of skipped that like the, my very first school band we were kind of very infantile in an infantile way tried to put together you know these original ideas which were, in a way were probably rip-offs about yeah. <laughs> the songs um, you know because my limited kind of you know even though I was still learning to play guitar like you know the amount of chords that I knew and things and ways of playing was still very limited so it was just we were all kind of learning as we went along but it was kind of fun to kind of try to put your own kind of songs together and I would obviously write the lyrics that was my first kind of you know engagement of, of trying to to kind of put that that aspect of something else that I loved which was like you know you know literature and things that age 
in, in, into some kind of melting pot. I mean, writing lyrics is obviously an art in itself. Was there anyone that you were focusing on? I know you've mentioned bands, but were you getting the CDs and taking out the inlays and reading certain vocalists or songwriters and t- kind of, you know, seeing what they did to get influenced, or were you just going for it on your own? Um, I think it was a mix of both. I mean, I can't remember. I think a band that really kind of opened my eyes in terms of what you could put in a song lyrically was, was you know, Greg Graffin and, and Brett Gurewitz, you know, Bad Religion, that kind of, that writing team. And just the levels of complexity and intelligence that were on offer. I mean, it's very kind of, sometimes it's like, you know, when I, at that age, when I first discovered it, I thought, you know, who are these guys filling, you know, fitting in political textbooks and, and scientific textbooks and yeah. sociological textbooks into, into songs, into these songs. And um, so for me, going from like growing up, listening to, you know, you know, Revolver and um, Rubber Soul by the Beatles, where it's very, po- very poetical, very, you know, relationship driven kind of stuff and sometimes abstract as well into these kind of very succinct, very direct, you know, descriptions of, you know, postmodernism, you know, scientific kind of exploration, all these things, you know, fitting into a a punk rock context just blew my mind. So for me, um, I think it was very, very key for me to kind of figure out where I could fit my own kind of interpretation. But one of the the big songwriters for me that I, you know, that I loved... um, whose lyrics I really cottoned on to quite early on was uh, Blake uh, Schwarzenbach from, from Jawbreaker. He kind of, it was a, it was a very diary approach without it being soppy, you know? It was very, it was a way of writing train of thought stuff without it being, you know, too bent on being, you know, boy meets girl relationship stuff and without it being too, too crazy or too abstract. Um, and you mix that in with a liberal dose of Morrissey as well, and I loved it. I mean, it 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 was it was licensed. I mean, a lot of poetry as well. That you know, when I in my in my mid teens, I started getting reading a lot of Ted Hughes, caught on to you know Sylvia Plath and and other poets of that you know quite you know at that around about that same time. So we kind of all mixed in, and you know you know in a, in an attempt to try to find some sort of way to describe what was going on in my head and the way I thought about what I was experiencing and seeing at that early age um, and well, you know one of the very first fruits of that experimentation were, was the, ended up being the lyrics to Juno which was very early on in my um, in my in my little notebook of, of thoughts and ideas that I that I used to keep so obviously when the music goes and kind of transforms to a live show, was what can you remember the, some of the first bands you went to see that just blew your mind and thought that's what I want to do? Like it's one thing wanting to be in a band, but when you see a band yeah. live, you know that's exactly where I see myself. I mean, I never, you know, went to a lot of gigs when I was in my. I mean, I, my parents, my dad took me to see my brother and me to see the Bootleg Beatles in St David's Hall in Cardiff when I was in my very early teens. I must be ten or eleven. Um, he took me to us to see the Hollies, St David's Centre in Cardiff, St David's Hall in Cardiff, um, right about the same time. Weirdly, I saw. I think one of the main things that I saw the Manic Street Preachers play. I took my brother, me and my brother went to see the Manic Street Preachers play in the CIA in Cardiff on the Everything Must Go tour, and that was 
in a way now more I realize now more than I can recall back then was was definitely a, a revelation in terms of just the noise the experience of a, of a show that size I mean also yeah I mean I, I can't believe I forgot but um me and a bunch of friends in my mid-teens we, we, this is one of the one of the one of the craziest things we used to, we, we used to do but we went on a on a on a coach trip to to london to wembley to see pearl jam play on the no code tour and that was one of the earliest first like big big shows i've ever been to i'd never been in a pit it was me and a, a bunch of friends and we were there on the floor we had standing uh, tickets and we were all caught up in the pit and the band came on i remember falling to the floor and just seeing hundreds upon hundreds of feet coming my way <laughs> and being picked up by a friend and thrown around jumping along being unable to to kind of move and then catching these glimpses and sonic and eclipse of the band and then i think that really solidified it for me that i just wanted to be in a position where I, that's what i wanted to do to people this is what i wanted to kind of this this feeling of of, of like this human kind of play-doh <laughs> experience where i was a skinny little kid in amongst all these people being moved around um unwillingly at that point because i just it just went you just went with the wave until um i was thrown out at the end on the other side of the uh, the arena and then i could just kind of stand there and watch this band perform these songs i was transfixed by what that was doing to the people who were there to watch I mean, I was there watching all these people just lose their shit, screaming, singing. And I remember in the back of my head at that point, uh, oh, wouldn't it be great if you could do that? If you could just have that power, really. Because I just felt I, at that age, I mean, I was like 16, 17, and I was just, just to have that power, that ability just to kind of command people to be able to kind of just have that mass catharsis. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, wouldn't that be fun? Wouldn't that be awesome? And then I think I thought of that for all of, t- of, of two seconds and then continued losing my shit. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, so I think that's kind of like one of those moments. That's like one of that, that, that moment where I realised that that, that, would be, that would be pretty cool. So fast forward a few years and then you obviously formed Funeral for a Friend in 2001. Did you do that whole thing of putting up a piece of paper in a local music shop asking for drummers, bass players, or did you have mates, or how did how did you form it? I didn't form anything. I mean, the band technically was fully formed before I even joined. At the request of a, of a really good friend of mine, I got asked to try out for a band who had just lost their second vocalist. And at that point, I was kind of done being um in a band as such i mean i was at that point i had just opened a record store in my hometown i was in my very early 20s i had um been going to punk rock shows uh hardcore shows for about two years prior to that taking a small distro with me doing a doing a zine uh interviewing bands uh that i loved and respected on the punk and hardcore scene they were coming through Cardiff and Newport and I was content I uh, got approached like I said by, by a very good friend of mine Matthew Evans and he had this band called January Thirst that he was in with Johnny Phillips who was a local promoter that I knew um, was playing drums 
and he came up my house one time with this um, de- this track that they'd recorded that was going to be included on a compilation CD put out by uh, Blackfish Records, which was run by Ian Glasper from from Stamping Ground uh, from the UK. And so he came up to my house, and he was super proud. He put this this track on that this band January Thirst that he was in had done. I was like, I was so happy for him, but I didn't really like the song too much. <laughs> At least you're honest. I know. I mean, I was. I mean, I mean, I was just like, oh, yeah, man, cool. I mean, I thought it was cool that there was a band locally that was doing this. There was, you know, it just sounded like there were parts of it that I thought were cool, and there were parts I just didn't get. So yeah, and I was really happy for him, and they released it and stoked. And then a couple of months later, he was like, oh, "Do you want to try out for this? You know, my band January Thirst, so second vocalist, um, we've parted ways." And um, and I was a bit, I was a bit dubious at first because I kind of knowing that one track that they did, I was like, "Well, I don't really know what I'm going to do," and I've never really sung anything. I mean, I, I've, I'd sung, and I've you know I had kind of done. You know, vocal stuff in in like the you know my school bands that I'd done, as well as play guitar. But I'd never really kind of considered being an out and out vocalist without a guitar strapped to myself. I went along, met the guys. I mean, I'd met you know Chris was in a band, and I'd met him briefly, hung out at this rehearsal space in a local church in the village where Chris grew up, and and they played me a track and uh, of what they were working on. Um, they showed me some lyrics. We we worked on something for uh, about an hour, I think, some of the song. And that first track that we that I kind of auditioned myself on with this band, January Thirst, ended up being Ten Forty Five Amsterdam Conversations. Nice. Um, and, and it was pretty much nailed within within two hours, I think, <laughs> of, of my very first meeting of of this of the guys in the band actually hearing this and it kind of I remember Chris telling me afterwards that he said because of you what you did because of what you brought to the table uh, it completely reconfigured my idea of what this band should be um, sonically um, because I didn't do the screamy thing I mean I didn't do the I just sang I mean I didn't even think about think about it I just opened my mouth I had these words that Chris wrote in front of me and I just put them where I thought they should go and sung them how I thought they should be sung, and that is how the ball got rolling. Really, I mean, they all they all did this crazy, stupid thing of like going outside uh, and leaving me inside the hall to kind of make a decision whether or not I can be in the band or not. Amazing. Uh, um, and they came back in. Yeah, you're in. Yeah, you're in. And and then that was it. That is as, as they say is how it happened. I joined an already existing band, but um, but, but kind of ch- but changed it. <laughs> Because, because of what I, I kind of, of what I did that very first practice. So you guys obviously then formed Funeral for a Friend. You had a couple of EPs out. Was it four? Was it four or five ways to scream your name before Seven Ways to Scream Your Name came out? Four ways. Four, four ways. ways to scream your name. And that was quite raw, and you know it wasn't very polished, and there was a lot of screaming, and it was a very kind of hardcore sounding EP. Were you happy with the way that it was going? Were you loving that sound that you had produced, or did you want more of a produced, polished sound? Because there's a big difference between those EPs and then the official debut yeah, album. Yeah. I honestly had no idea 
how making a record worked or um, the idea behind it, this whole thing of production and, you know, I mean, vaguely, I, I had a vague concept, but once you kind of start working, you know, going from your local recording studio um, with your local engineers and, uh, and, and then you start working with an actual producer, it's a very different kettle of fish. Yeah. For me, I mean, I love those EPs. I mean, I love... How yeah, I love how raw they are. I love how honest they are, and I mean, I'd be lying if I said that I, I, I you know, I, I was disappointed that that rawness was then, I guess, kind of diluted by the polish of production, yeah, so to speak, of an actual professional production, <laughs> because I think the way they came out was um, was due to a lot of factors, and I think. Sometimes that's the magic that goes into making a record. Sometimes, you know, the lack of time you have, the lack of opportunity you have to really overthink things, um, it can, can work, you know, to, more in your favour than be a, a hindrance. And um, so for me, that those, those two EPs, you know, uh, Between Order and Model and Four Ways were just beautiful snapshots of just the urgency and just the determination of just getting these songs because we didn't have like this huge history behind us no. like a lot of bands do you know where they grew up and they're in school and they kind of go through all these um, versions of what the band they, they want to be when they grow up kind of thing definitely um, together I mean we you know we're on the fly we wrote the first four songs we ever wrote ended up being our first ever EP you know there was no filter there was no like oh that's not good we, you know that'll be a B-side or whatever we just the first four songs we did, which were Red is the New Black, Juno, 1045, and Love American Football, you know, that was our calling card. We, like, we loved, those songs turned out in such a fashion for us that we were like, you know, the bands that influenced us to get to those songs were, were so, were, were still dripping from them, so to speak, you know? So for us, that was a huge proud moment and was our kind of calling card. And we were just desperate to get that, you know, that, them recorded so we can have something to help us get shows. So the the roughness, the rawness was just down to the the sheer you know urgency that we had to kind of get something out there so we could show people. Um, little did we know that the recording studio that we were using also had a record label, and they decided after we did the first EP that they wanted to to put it out, and then that put us on the road. Um, that got us to us. That got us a man. That got us management. That got us an agent. Very early on. I mean, we'd only played a handful of fucking shows. <laughs> Been on a full proper tour, and then A and R people were coming, and then we ended up going through that whole shit that you go, you know, you go through, and then to come out the other end, being signed and putting out an EP like Four Voices Screaming, in where you could almost have a wish list of things you'd wanted to do. I mean, we ended up, you know, that was our first record that we actually got to work with a proper producer, um, Colin Richardson, uh, who'd done, you know, Carcass and Machine Head and everything. And and it was a very weird thing because, I mean, I'd, I had no kind of idea in my head of, like, you know, finding producers that might be more... More, you know, more in sync with what you were kind of doing sonically. I mean, I think that's down to the fact that as people in our band, we were all, we all had different influences. 
And by that time, by the time we recorded that EP, um, we'd already gone through a lineup shift. So we had people in the band who, you know, the dynamic had already changed, and you know that was already kind of starting to kind of, I think, dictate the 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 relationship that we were going to have in terms of how we were going to fare when it came to being swallowed up by the whole major label record industry kind of stuff, you know? So then when you actually took that jump, you, I mean, most bands work for years, absolutely years. I interviewed Therapy the other day and they told me it took, you know, polishing that first album for five years. You guys formed in 2001, you released Casually Dressed and Deep in Conversation in 2003, you were signed to a big label, you were on MTV, Kerrang!, playing big festivals it happened really quickly i'm not saying it's luck but you must have been in the right place at the right time because some bands would work decade to try and get half of what you got and that success came very quick i saw you in a pub in leicester when you you were so raw you were supporting someone like million dead and then the next thing i know you're headlining on a tour and playing a wolverhampton civic hall which was huge and selling out so it's a lot to happen in a short time i mean to be honest here i mean i can recall it just being a very bizarre, crazy time. I mean, it was it was incredibly exciting because I mean, it's it's like the dream thing that it, you know. It's almost like you know, like it happens in the movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's it is. I mean, I think is there's an aspect of luck. There's it, it also an aspect, I think, of the fact that what we were doing, what the music that we were making, connected in a way that we didn't anticipate. Um, it was at the right time, I think, you know, the American influence was starting to come over into the UK, all these, you know, the, these, the, the wave of Victory Records bands that were coming through, like Thursday and Taking Back Sunday, um, My Chemical Romance had just started kind of making a name for themselves thrice, at, you know, were on their second album. And I think we were lucky enough to be obviously influenced by a lot of bands that these bands were also influenced by, but we were doing our own thing. I mean, speak, you know, bands like Hundred Reasons and Hell Is for Heroes were were our were our contemporaries in a weird way. But at the time, you know, we wanted to be, you know, one of our very first ever shows was opening up for Hell Is for Heroes in Newbury Corn Exchange, and I remember the whole the whole thing being like, you know, pretty insane that we could, you know, we were playing for, you know with these bands whose records that we were were all huge fans of and um that, that american influence really did help kickstart something in the uk which we were very fortunate enough you know with the music that we had made a connection i mean it, it was very very quick i mean we put out uh, i think uh, between order and model was released in spring 2002 um we did our very first full proper tour supporting a band called phony in autumn of 2002 we opened for boys it's fire in the juliana theory in the winter of 2002 we recorded four ways in january 2003 it was then released in the spring of 2003 and then we throughout the early summer um we went in um into into Chapel Studios in Lincolnshire and uh, Rack Studios in London to record what would become Casually Dressed and Deep in Conversation in two halves. And then, you know, we did, I mean, we played Download. We we, we played the main stage at Download um, that year, which was insane. It was the very first festival I'd ever properly been to. And I, I fucking played it. 
<laughs> which was mind blowing. Was a pant pant filling yeah. uh, exercise uh, from this small this small boy from the valleys of South Wales. Um, we played the Concrete Jungle stage at Reading and Leeds um, that summer, and then Casually Dressed came out in October. 2003 and everything just went fucking nuts yeah everything from that point just went insane and um people started losing i mean people started connecting to that record in a way that i still to this day um can't quite fully uh compute but it's i you know it was the start of something that you know took 15 years um to, to you know to put a stop to really it's it's you know, uh, an album that changed my life. It then shaped my music taste. It, it was a great time. When you just mentioned some of those bands, I remember putting on Top of the Pops and seeing 100 Reasons playing Silver. I went to yeah. a local pub that night and got to see bands like Cave In, Million Dead, 100 Reasons. And it was just a time when everyone was listening to great music and there was all these great bands like rival schools on the scene and bands you were just... It was such a good time for music, and I don't want to sound like a granddad, but it felt like the no, best time, you I, know. I, I totally get it, and I totally understand. I mean, coming, from, I mean, obviously we were just starting out in that at that time as well. But as as fans of music, and especially in that scene, I mean, all the you know bands like Kate. I mean, I I, I love Cave-In. I mean, um, it, they're, they're a band, you know, like Rival Schools. I, mean, I was a huge. I'm a huge quicksand fan, so yeah, anything that Walter Schweifels did was just, you know, godlike to me. I mean, discovering Hundred Reasons, you know, these British bands that were making a sound that was that was kind of an, an amalgam of, of American, you know, noise rock, post hardcore, and stuff that you know was very much in my blood. And they were becoming, they were you know releasing these incredible records. It was definitely, I mean, it was a time, it was a period in, in, in the subculture of, of British music history, which I don't think, I mean, maybe it's my jaded view in it, but I, I, I can't, that excitement, I've not, I mean, maybe other kids are feeling it now, well, maybe, but I mean, I remember just that instant, that, that hit of it, and it just felt like that summer, that, you know, 2003, that whole 2003, kind of 2004 period was just, like, golden. Yeah. It was golden. So, no, there's no other way I can put it. I mean, I don't know. It just seemed like a perfect, you know, coalescing of of the right, the right sound, the right attitudes, the right bands. And then, like, any scene that comes along, you start kind of, it just... You know, once the media get their hands on it, it just gets pulled apart, and eventually, it get it it it. I wouldn't say it dies, but it it goes cowering off into a corner somewhere, trying lick to lick its wounds, hoping to come back stronger another day. <laughs> um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, I look back on it often. I mean, because a lot of the music that I still listen to, and I listen to a lot, is it's from that. You know, from that period, from like the the late nineties into the early two thousands, were just were just phenomenal, inspirational times for that kind of scene of music. Because it blew up so quickly for you. I mean, you just described then and did like a timeline of sort of twelve months, and it's it's a dream for anyone. Were you actually quite self aware of how quick it was building? Because you're involved. So me watching it on the outside, going to the record shop and having to order you know, four ways in as an import and then getting casually dressed 
in HMV's top 10 of the week when you walk through the door. It's huge. And then, like you said, I saw you at Download on the main stage opening up. It's that's that's what bands work for for their whole career, and that would be enough for them to then retire. Were you actually aware of this is going so quick, or were you just too involved in it that you couldn't actually have the time to even step back and kind of reflect? I mean, I think it was... I mean, reflection came much later on, I'll be honest. Yeah. Um, we were literally in the eye of a very powerful storm. I mean, we were all still very young. I mean, we were in, all in our early 20s, so this to come, you know, as quick as it did just swept us all up. And, you know, here we are, we were playing these festivals, we were touring with these bands, we were headline doing headline tours, we could pick support bands, we were going to America for the first time, things I don't ever seen on a, in a film or a TV show. It took a lot of years to fully realise just how fortunate we were to be in that position, to be in that situation. And I know people, you know, we used to be very humble about it when we first started out because we were like, I mean, there are a million better bands out there than us was one of our lines we used to throw around. But it took me about a year or two into it to realise, hang on a minute, the stuff that we're writing, I think is really, really good. You know, there's, there's no shame in tooting your own home when you're creating something as personal and as... Um, and as self-involved as music is, I mean, to be honest, our music is very much self-involved. I mean, so, you know, I, I, we kind of give, you know, we, we try to give ourselves some credit because, you know, as much as luck was involved, we were, you know, we were good at what we fucking did. I mean, <laughs> I mean, we did something that few bands were doing, you know, around the time that we came out. And... And we had fun with it. I mean, and that was the thing. We really tore into it. We had fun. Whatever, we, you know, experiences came our way, traveling, going to all these different countries, meeting new people. I mean, I love that. I mean, for me, just being able to kind of share that, I mean, which is a very strange thing because I'm quite an introverted person. But through music, it allowed me to kind of make connections, which I never would have done in under any normal social circumstances. That's just the magic of what music does, I think. And, um you know, we were all able to do things and, and to really just live a dream. I'll be, you know, completely honest. It was living a dream. And I, there's a lot of it which I can really, it blurs into one huge mess of just, because it was so frantic and so quick and because we were never really spent that much time back in Wales. We were always toing and froing, toing and froing. There was never any chance to kind of set our foot down anywhere long enough to really take stock. I mean, it's it's. I saw you on stage a few times, and you always look like you're having the time of your life. It wasn't. You can tell if someone's putting it on and wearing a mask, and you all look like you were the humble's the word. You know, you were very grateful. I'd met you backstage. I'd seen all of you. Really had time for your fans, and you you weren't just doing the whole we're fucking made it now and we don't care. You you were genuine. Now, after this album took off, it was very different. It was very polished. It was a lot more radio friendly. Did you have that? fear of we need to try and follow it up with the the big second album that Biffy Clyro, Hell is for Heroes, Deftones, Green Day, all these bands, they've left such a print on their first debut. I mean, Casually Dressed is one of the best debuts ever. Now, to actually then follow it up, you must have been like, oh, God, this is a complete change in circumstances. My life's different. We've seen the world now. We've got success. How do you even start to kind of get that thought process in place? Um, I think I think the way we treated 
the first album compared to how um, people on the outside treated it was very different. For us, it was it was almost like a a collection of songs that were included from other releases because of how popular they were with our audience at the time. Yeah. And the record label wanted to exploit that. A lot of the songs that were our cornerstone songs from those EPs, you know, um, Skate Artists Never Die, uh, Juno, which we went back in and kind of tried to kind of complete because when people started hearing that song, it was a demo. It kind of never really fully felt like it, it had formed completely. So we didn't really realize, you know, we didn't think anything of it. We thought, okay, we can just go in and, and just kind of, you know, fix some stuff that we felt that was kind of like, you know, little little to, to, to we know that, that was going to cause some friction with people. Um, and it also allowed me to readdress the fact that um, I, I obviously spelt the, the capital city of Alaska wrong. <laughs> Easy uh, mistake. So the way we treated that record was very different, I think, to the way the, you know, the fans devoured it. So when it came time to following it up, didn't have the the I think the the anxiety or the dreaded second album, sophomore album, kind of curse thing for us, because we just never, you know, we for us this album, the second album, ours felt like it was our first proper album, yeah, because it was completely it was completely starting from a clean slate of all no brand new songs, songs, yeah, yeah. Nothing that had already been, you know, worked out into, you know, the groundwork hadn't already been laid on it. So it was more exciting for us because we had a little bit of time to actually put some thought into this where Casually Dress was, yeah, collections of songs for the for, for the album. But um, we also bullshitted the record label when they asked us if we had enough songs for an album. We said yes, but we didn't. <laughs> so we ended up writing stuff on the fly that yeah. we didn't really get a chance to really to kind of, you know, to sink in with us until much later on, until we started touring that album. So ours was our first opportunity to write something from scratch and spend some time thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, a lot of changed. I mean, you know, 18 months to two years, to you know, two and a half years. It was filled with a lot of interesting things and, um, and a lot of the, the stuff that I had lyrically that I'd used up on the first album was stuff that I'd been writing since I was in my mid-teens. So ours was a reflection of where I was lyrically and personally right there and then. So I think that's why there's a, 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 a distinct shift in tone between the two albums. But I never, I never really felt that there was any stress when it came to that album. I felt excited by it. I felt it was a great opportunity. I felt we'd weirdly matured over that period of time because I definitely felt a bit more mature. I don't know why. In, in terms of I felt more assured of myself. I felt like I knew what I wanted to achieve with that record, um, lyrically. And I think I started to find myself a bit more because sometimes you can go through your your teenage years and your, your early adolescence and you're kind of flirting around trying to figure out who you are and what it is that you want, who you are, your identity. And I think I'd started to kind of shape that at that point, around about when I was 24, 25. So that kind of definitely allowed, I think, all of us to really get into the second album with a bit more confidence than we did actually with the first. <laughs> it must be nice to look back and know that, you know, you had three top 20 singles, 
that album took off. It was it was huge. It elevated you, so you weren't doing the first band on at download. You were, you know, I think you were on just before Guns N' Roses when I saw you one year. The, the jump then was the next level, and I know you were prepared because you'd had this great whirlwind of a year, but the elevation then was another level. You'd thought that year was good when you brought out your debut, but this was even bigger. You were you were just before Guns N' Roses. You're you're selling thousands and thousands of albums worldwide. That must be wow. From my perspective, I mean, from my perspective, we couldn't or we didn't afford ourselves the luxury of of basking in 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 that in in in, in that very eloquent level of <laughs> of what you just of, of phrased there. Because um, we, you know, we were never a band to really pat ourselves on the back too much. It was always difficult for us. I'll be honest. I think we always struggled with it. I mean, um, both personally and I think as a band, because I think deep down we knew where we were rooted, where we were grounded, and I think we felt slowly being pulled in a direction and pull, you know, being pulled away from it. I mean, a lot of bands, I think a lot of bands want that and 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 and, and, and crave that, and um, and that's the kind of stuff that they kind of dream of. And for I think for us, it was, and for me, it was just having a platform to be able to to write music that meant something to you. And, um, and all of a sudden, you're there and you're playing to, you know, sweet, you know, thousands of people at festivals. You're playing stellar shows, 2,000 people, 5,000 people, at, you know, Brixton Academy. You're playing this, that, and the other. And it's just, it's gobs, it, it, it's, it brings a level of reality um, closer to you when you realise that you know things have changed. I mean, you say you know the, the world was so strong that we didn't really realise just how much things had changed until you know they're there in your face and you you know you can take a small breath and you think, Christ, I couldn't go into um, Nottingham you know, before a show, looking to, you know, just going around the shops, you know, buying comic books and stuff without coming back and having about 40, 50 kids circle you, squeezing you, pushing you, trying to shove stuff in your face left, right and centre. Um, you just felt like you just... For me, that was a very weird thing, where before you could hang out with people and talk about music, and then suddenly the level of popularity that you gain takes you into a completely different bracket altogether. You know, we'd started, we were then flirting with what it was like to be a celebrity to a degree. And I found that awfully weird. <laughs> awfully difficult to deal with. Uh, I'm more of a three-person-at-a-time kind of, you know, talking to kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. And here I was being corralled by 50, 60 people just, in, you know, on the pavement, spilling out onto the main road, and I was freaking out. And then gradually it became very difficult to go anywhere without somebody following you around things like that used to happen like Gareth our old bass player used to recall the time where he went he wanted to get some money up from a cash point and he had this kid follow him all the way to the cash machine looking over his shoulder <laughs> and uh, it's just it's just crazy you just kind of you know we never fully made that kind of that split what it was to, to be like in the public in, in, in with a certain level of, of public kind of perception and then being this band from south wales who were in our heads we were like a hardcore band you're on the front of krang magazine you're you're on the main stage at download everyone's everyone knows your name everyone 
everyone knows the cover of your album. They've seen you on MTV. You can't yeah. really hide. And no, I know. And it was and honestly at that point, it was a little bit difficult. I mean, I think you know some bands can embrace that, and that's what they want to do. And for us, I think I, I know I found it a challenge. So I mean, I think I think at that point we kind of not withdrew from being more social, you know, sociable, but, you know, we just kind of learned to, that our kind of the way we, you know, if we wanted a certain level of ourselves to, you know, we would have to kind of just, you know, pare it back a little. It was still just a very challenging kind of situation to, to be faced with. And um, I mean, still to this day, I look at it, and I think, you know, just how bizarre it was to be going through those situations at that time, not being fully prepared for it. But I mean, we got you know it, we got through it. I mean, as grateful as we you know as I am for the, the the people that went out and came and supported the shows and everything like that. I think it was a not a relief as such, but it was just nice to be able to kind of claim some of yourself back much later on towards the end of the band's career. So um, it was counterbalanced in some way, but I mean, it was just bizarre to go hand in hand with a record that I loved so much I mean ours was an album that I is my favorite thing that we ever did and it also was responsible for putting us in a position where we felt a little bit more of a disconnect from people on a more personal level there was just not enough of us to give to be able to kind of do to for that many people that were coming to the shows I mean it was just it was emotionally sometimes physically draining do you think now obviously there was a few lineup changes there was some more albums do you think the success could have been your biggest downfall not in a financial and popularity way but the way you're talking it must have been difficult because you couldn't be with the people anymore you couldn't just be a hardcore band you were a pop band and i'm ta- i'm saying that in the most respectful way no, I totally understand. I totally see. Pop, know, like, pop is popular. Yeah, pop is popular. To see yeah, our band go from being what it was—a small band. Um, for us, you know, a very—I mean, not a, an, an unreal band, but a very kind of personal band. Yeah. To, in a position where we were in, 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 in confronted with this 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 level of. of of success where we were just you know top of the pops yeah surreal you 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 just haven't got the time or the energy because at that point we'd been a band for the blink of an eye we'd been we toured recorded wrote recorded toured you know succinctly for about four years straight without any breaks i think towards the end of the hours album we started to kind of really start to to show some 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 signs of, of fatigue you couldn't go on like that you'd burn out and many bands do and that's why they split after a couple of albums not many bands now get 10 20 years under their belt where where was it that you started seeing the main cracks then because obviously you split in 2016 but how how long were you actually paper over in these cracks how 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 long were you suffering how long was it not the same anymore i think like you know like like a lot of stuff i mean the, the 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 fine line was struggling to resolve the idea of you the reason why you did the band in the first place with the the aspect of it becoming something that you were now taking a wage from 
you, it was earning you money, it was allowing you to, to pay the bills, and it became your job. For a lot of people, that's a dream, but I think sometimes that comes with a cost. And the outlet that the, the band was for us to get away from our daily routine, to get away from our, our lives, um, became our routine, became our lives. And yeah. where do you go to escape from that? Because um, <laughs> it's you know it's the it's the crux of create of, of being a of when you create something yeah is it's a very draining um, way to be. It's being creative is a very it's a demanding um, and, and and especially if you kind of consider it as an art form as, as I do. I mean, it's sometimes you've got to kind of you're going to kind of look at what you're doing and being able to kind of make peace with it that sometimes with you know you're not giving this might not be your best stuff <laughs> because it's getting you know you're having to put it on tap and I think that's the crux that's the problem with mainstreaming art and commodifying art whether it's music or anything is that when you try to put a tap on it and then you have to tell it to produce something every certain period of time that can have a negative impact so for me when we started working on our third album, that's when the cracks, I think, started to to show a little bit, where we started to become a little uh, disenchanted with the popularity. I've, I've said this before to, to to people: is that we were our own, we were we were our best attempt at saboteuring ourselves because we never wanted to follow anything up with anything that was going to be a continuation of what we had done before, especially for the record labels, probably even more so for the fans. Yeah. Um, because we didn't want to just be a band that was just going to regurgitate the, the album we did before just to placate people's expectations of us. And I think we were very... We were a bit, we were a bit bastardish in that regard. We were very stubborn. I mean, we always used to joke to our record label that we were going to be, you know, we were going to do a concept album, and they literally looked at us with fear. Yeah, absolutely shitting <laughs> themselves. The kiss of death. Um, and I would, I would literally. I mean, I would torment Ori and Argo, saying that we we're going to make, a, you know, we were going to, you know, do a dark side of the dark side of the moon because at that time, for our genre of music. You know, prog rock, progressive rock wasn't a thing. No. <laughs> you didn't do that. You didn't go from do, being an emo band to start doing a prog epic. And and um, and what did well, what did we follow up hours with? A concept album about a fisherman lost at sea. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I mean, I remember the conversation with our management. And it was a, yeah, I mean, I think it was an attempt an immature attempt by us at the time to try to kind of to derail our own success. Yeah. And I think we partially succeeded. <laughs> um, because, you know, how, what more div- how more divisive could you be than to write a full-on concept album, write lyrical content that had no real grounding in anything personal whatsoever, so it was all narrative, more or less. And then you... You 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 put choirs on it, you put uh, orchestras on it, you put uh, a guy flown in from Brazil to play tambourine on every single song. Um, you almost throw a kitchen sink on it, <laughs> um, 
and you take full advantage of the the generosity of your then record label <laughs> who are willing to to pay for all this i you know i took the opportunity to have one of my best friends come down from south wales uh, after she'd finished work she traveled all the way down to london on the train to do vocals on one song for me because i wanted her to we put the you know we put symphony orchestra on there we just did everything that we could to make it sound like nothing we had done before and obviously that kind of worked to a degree but also you can't just make it back, make yourself sound like somebody else you know inherently whatever we do whether it's bombastic full on rock like tales untell themselves or punk you know like the art of football it still sounds like the same people playing it it's the inherent magic of what make made our kind of creativity so unique is that it was very you know we were a very identifiable band <laughs> by our idiosyncrasies i think yeah those cracks kind of manifested and, and i think it kind of pushed us to do those things to see how far we could push it to see how uh, if we could break it i don't know whether it's not whether it was because we wanted it to end but it was definitely becoming something in the back of um, of my mind that um, I knew that if it did, I wouldn't be upset, weirdly, if you know what I mean. I think I was content with everything that we'd done up to that point. I think I knew that if it was all going to end right there, if we could, if it was going to crumble down, that I would be not upset about it at all. So how hard was it getting it over the line with the label and stuff when they listened to it and were like, what the fuck are you doing, guys? This isn't the same band. Well, obviously, I mean, for, it kind of backfired because for them, they saw, they saw just. I mean, we had, you know, we worked with a, a phenomenal, um, with the phenomenal Gil Norton on that record, um, who had the Gil you know, Norton, yeah, the Gil, the Gil Norton, the man responsible for the color and the shape by Foo Fighters, the man responsible for the, the Pixies sonic sounding ma- majesty. You know, for us, he, he, he turned something that we were subconsciously using to subvert <laughs> uh, a lot of things around our band into something that sounded technically like we wanted it to sound. I mean, when we told him that we wanted it to sound like Boston, he made it sound like Boston, really. I mean, but we still sound, you know, for a friend, we just happened to sound bigger, broader, more commercial <laughs> than, than we'd ever sounded before. And um, and I wanted to put, and this is the thing. This is, the, I mean, I was actually beaten by my own bandmates at this point because I wanted the story, I wanted the concept album because they didn't realise that I was writing a concept album directly <laughs> <laughs> um, until I put the story together and then told them that the actual running order of the of the album is in the wrong order to tell, to tell the story. And I really wanted the album to to be in the order that the narrative works. Yeah. Wanted the words to be more important than the music. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I lost that fight. And so the running order became the usual kind of, you know, big song, you know, your huge hit first. Yeah. Which, you know, Oblivion was meant to be at the end of the album, the last song at the end of the album. And I've since kind of told a few people every once in a while if they ask what songs to program in, if they want to hear the narrative <laughs> running in the right order. Um, but yeah, I mean, for what, for all intents and purposes, people seem to like it. I mean, the record labels loved it. Um, they thought it was majestic, sonic 
you know, it was it was all the things, you know, it had big choruses, it had no screaming, it had everything that they thought we could do to make a crossover album, but we you know, we didn't play ball. <laughs> um so then we did we produced a very polished slice of of modern progressive pop rock. That's when we decided to throw a spanner in the works by um, re- not deciding to um, renegotiate our contract with said record label when it was up for renewal and um, leading them to drop the record like a hot potato um, mid, mid-cycle. And it never really kind of, it didn't transcend, so to speak, to use wondrous music business lingo. <laughs> so... After you guys pretty much commit career suicide with that, um, what what kept you going until 2016? What was it? Were you did it become a job? And that's sad as it is. You know, you use I use the podcast now as a release to get away from my day job. If the podcast ever became my job that I had to do, I wouldn't want to do it anymore because there's no passion or no want for it. So is that what happened with the music? I would say, in hindsight, yes. Yeah. I think we were we were a bit blinkered by by a lot of things i mean not to say that what we didn't produce after tales um wasn't any good i mean i think there are aspects of uh memory and humanity the follow-up uh record that we decided to do because we we thought we were so kind of cocky and self-assured enough that we would set up our own record label and it would be it'd be grand but like i said earlier on about creativity i think when you have to put it on tap you don't always produce your best stuff. I think we, rather than like a lot of bands can do these days, take a break from it, get get some focus, reconstitute, find yourself. We plowed on and, you know, we felt like we, we had to be even more present. And so we ended up just kind of like writing stuff and writing stuff. And, you know, there's a couple of songs on Memory and Humanity, which I, I like, but I, I it, it was a bit of a failed experiment. With that we never really could fully, I, I could, you know, I don't think I could ever fully really get behind it as such. And it was really weird because until we had that, you know, we had that album and then, and then we started having members deciding to, to, to leave. Yeah. I mean, Gareth left, he, you know, he got married, he was living in, in the US. That was his focus. We brought um, a friend of ours into the fold. Darren then left on the run-up to making Welcome Home Armageddon, and we brought another friend of ours into the fold. And as that that dynamic changed and we were brought in fresh blood, so to speak, um, it it affected the older members of the band. I mean, I think that's what, you know, it's almost like getting a shot in the arm, so to speak. So it was slowly giving us a new sensation and a new respect for the band again um it's one of those one of those things i mean it was just i think it was just you know the luck of the draw that we were you know gavin and rich came in at a time where we needed unbeknownst to us to be you know whether or not we needed it or not but they came in they came from an outside perspective and they weren't shy about saying what they'd like them at that point you know what they felt that we were missing and that's the first first periods of time in 2010, uh, 2011, that we really started to take stock of what this band was. Yeah. To us, again. 
something that we felt that I felt that we lost and um, slowly but surely we allowed ourselves to that it was okay to re-acknowledge and re you know get back in touch with our roots and slowly but surely reincorporate the things that would be that had been smoothed out of us whatever you want to call it label yeah you know interference success the disease of 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 success sometimes can kind of can perpetuate this notion of either you're invincible and i think we were able to kind of see that what we were doing you know at that point to our music was was not was was mistreating our ourselves and we were able to kind of go about making music again from a very starting slowly it was very slow but the process allowed us to kind of get back and and look at, at things from a different perspective um that, were, that was more enjoyable for us i think that was the main key i think was getting back to a place where being in the band was fun again and that's good because that fresh blood gave you a new perspective it gave you feedback from an outsider like you said you sometimes need that because you're so caught up in your own world with the same people you're not actually getting anyone else saying do you know what guys this isn't working or this is actually shit because yeah i know that's the thing. you're too you comfortable any, i mean that's the th- i mean when you're all i mean when you're a step, a step in a band as we, we were um criticism never really came you know we always felt that we were very critical of ourselves but nobody on the inside ever told us anything you know was good or not or you know always like you know placate the ego that's the kind of go-to kind of thing for people and i think we were we were a bit you know we were you know creative types we were in our cockiness we were we were a little bit too self-assured we were we were so convinced we knew what was best for our band and like i said i mean our unhappiness bled into that to the point where i think subconsciously we were going to try to 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 put a stick of dynamite underneath it um but you know having new people come in new people who are very creative and very talented in their own rights as well really you know the dynamic changed again and it 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 it, you can't help but put a new perspective on things and and give you a new lease of life and i mean welcome home armageddon the record that we did then was just was 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 a lot of fun to make i mean it was a it was a very blissful period of time where i think we were becoming more content with what we were doing i mean we were starting to get back to the core idea of what this band was which was yeah we could be and you know we could be this you know post-hardcore band still we didn't have to be you know yeah we were playing festivals we were playing to so-and-so but we could still be this band and our attitude started to reflect that and i kind of i kind of felt like i kind of discovered the 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 18 year old 19 year old me again the person that i was before the whirlwind happened and um, and I, I I gave him some space and um, and it, it allowed me to 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 reconnect with it in a more positive way. I wasn't so hell bent on destroying it. <laughs> so at this point, you're obviously playing smaller venues. Um, you're still touring. You're going there, but it's not on the same scale as when you had hours out. And your record sales obviously were not on a huge label, so it wasn't getting the coverage worldwide. But that probably yeah. that probably didn't matter because you were enjoying it. You had that drive and passion again for the band, which you might have lost and got kind of taken away from you. So, yeah. so what? 
it's not a bad place to be in. You were writing the music you wanted to do. You didn't have some big corporate guy come in and say, actually, no screaming, let's do this, let's do that. It's a, it's a good place to be in, but something obviously was missing because you didn't last that much longer before you called it a day. So what what went wrong? What was it that kind of... I, I mean, to be honest, Mark, I, don't think, I don't think anything went wrong. No? I mean, I, I mean, I don't want to say, like, you know, we called it a day because thing, you know. For me... Things came around so full circle that the uh, the inevitability. I mean, so, you know, the the well of creativity that we had for this band just ran dry. I mean, we did. You know, we put everything into this band. I put me, myself and Chris. To you know, at the end, we put fifteen years of our lives into this, and the ups and downs, and we were stoked enough to come back to a place where. We felt we were honouring the idea of what this band was when we, when we, all of us, in the first incarnation of this band, were in that church hall in Gilvach, South Wales, where I auditioned for them at the first time. It was almost respectful of that idea of what that band was right there and then, and and I know I know I spoke to Chris about it at the end. We were incredibly stoked to 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 have the band end in such a way there we, we were able to say that there were there was nothing that we would have changed no as as bizarre as it, as it is the story of battalion uh all the ups and downs and the and the things we've, we we went through i mean we i would not change a damn thing about it you just because, took my next question away. Thanks, mate. <laughs> <laughs> because it's um, not because I think it's. I think the band genuinely ran its course. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it ended too soon. I think it ended just in the right place because there was nowhere else for us to go. There was nothing else for us to say. There was nothing. I think we had changed inherently so much as people at that point. Our lives had changed so much that the the vehicle that was funeral for a friend. Um, I'd completed his journey and it was time for it to park up and you know for the rest of us to go off and, and figure out where else you know what we needed to do and um, and I've never in the the time since the, the final show to now had any other um, considerations about it I've never thought oh you know, I'm itching to get back on stage and do this and play these songs again. I don't. I mean, I, I don't want to rub it in or to, or to, you know, to break anybody's dream if, if or ever of, of this. But I'm very satisfied with the 15 years that Funeral had and what we were able to achieve and create, for better or for worse. I mean, the ups and downs. I think it was a great, great span of life uh, and. I am very proud of it, and I don't. I've, I've always said that I don't want to be the person that starts throwing these things. I mean, I get calls about, on Twitter about it all the time, where it's like, <clears throat> "When's the reunion? We need the reunion." I don't feel the need for a reunion until there's something new to add. If there's something new to add to the the book of funeral for a friend. At the moment, I mean, I've had no kind of urge to kind of to kind of follow that kind of creative path. I mean, I I I, I swam in it for fifteen years, and right now I'm still trying to you know figure out what it is. I mean, I, I, I just 
I just can't. I mean, I haven't had that same connection to 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 making music in the, in the way that I did when we were doing that. So, but it doesn't it doesn't bother me. There is a bit of a trend at the moment. Bands like A, weirdly, Hell is for Heroes, Hundred Reasons. They've all they're all touring as we speak, or they're writing again because it's fifteen years since the Neon Handshake, or A are doing their first album in its entirety and it's 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 a weird time because there's quite a few bands that I grew up watching that are now back on the scene if there is a time for you to do it it would be about now because it would be it would be natural because everyone else would be like oh okay so Funeral Friend are doing it as well but it sounds to me from talking to you yeah you see it I mean the nostalgia wave right now I mean I see it I mean I know you know a lot of bands when we did it I mean we did an hours tour um, the final tour we did was yeah. was play the first two albums back to back um, as a, as a as a goodbye and you know it just it it is it is the current trend of things and I mean I don't you know you know belittle it I mean when it comes to bands like Hellas for Heroes and stuff doing it I mean it's to celebrate a landmark of of such a phenomenal record I mean you know I can see the the you know the, the the need and the the viability of it. I mean, we kind of shot ourselves in the foot by doing it the last ever two we did, and to come back about two and a half, three years later trying to do it would be a bit like, yeah, oh, let's do it again. Um, so uh, to me, it's never appealed no. to kind of milk that milk that cow. I know there's money in it. I mean, I'm, I you know people would, but I mean, it's it's not never been about that. I mean. It's, you know, I feel like the only way, way I would really honestly want to get back on stage with Funeral for a Friend is if we had something new to offer, really. Um, and at the moment, I mean, I think everybody's in their, in their space and in their place in their lives. That, you know, that's what they're pursuing and there's no rush to get back to it. But also lives are different now. 15 years, you've all either got, you know, you've got wives, kids, cats. Yeah. Life's different. <laughs> yeah. Life's different. You know, there's... You were doing it then because you didn't have all that, and you could write songs about those emotions of heartache and pain and being skint and going out there and all the different emotions you have at that age. Now life's not as painful, life's not as hard. Those pains aren't there because you've healed them and you've been out there and done it. So I don't know, maybe I'm assuming, but you don't sound like someone that's got the itch. You're not ringing like, should we do it again? Should we get the band back together? You're not even writing songs for for that intention so no i know i mean it's i mean it's a, it's a bizarre thing it's i don't know whether it's not because of who i am as a person but i mean my wife finds it odd that i just can i can go months and more months and more months without singing a note and i just i never think about it i never once i mean i don't know whether that's the effect of 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 15 years of doing it consistently on you is, is done to me but um i just for me i've just i just have I just afford myself and allowed myself to kind of get involved in the other things in my life that I'm passionate about. And I still love, you know, don't get me wrong. I mean, I love music. I mean, I, I do. I mean, and I, I totally love it when a new band comes my way and I'm blown away by them, but I'm not itching. And that saddle is not in, in the near, is not nearby for me. <laughs> I'm not itching for it. So uh, we're shattering yeah, people's mean, dreams right now that are listening, waiting for you to announce a tour. But you know, sorry. No, I know. I, I get it all the time. I mean, I put, I, I started a, a Twitter. I, I, I put a Twitter profile back up for funeral because it was bugging me. I, 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 I can't remember what it was that inspired me to put one up again. But I felt like there's, 
I went on a Twitter rant because I felt like people were following, and it's steep price. The reason why people follow me because of me being in funeral for a friend. So all the stuff that I write about, whether it's political stuff or the incessant posts about my film collection and my film playing habits, um, my cats and all those things that are not funeral for a friend related just seem to be like water off a duck's back. But yet again, if I post something funeral for a friend related, it just goes ape shit. And then I get like, when's when's the reunion? When's the reunion? So I felt like I had to do like a for a friend Twitter where I can at least keep people updated on it's just not dated but just kind of like Phil just put stuff up that's yeah. just interesting that I come across because sometimes I do I look at you know I come across videos or things I'm like oh I'm, I vaguely remember that that'll be fun that's fun to share and just because I realise that you know for a lot of people who follow, my ba- follow the, you know, the band you know my, my general life is a bit boring for them <laughs> um, so yeah I mean you know Give something back, innit? <laughs> I think what's really good as well is we talked today about the whole career, but it ended well. It ended when it felt right. The bands that split up because the label pulled their album or they went bankrupt or one of their band members ran into rehab or quit, that book doesn't feel like it naturally closed. So maybe they come back to try and reclose it the way they want, where for you guys, you were all content and happy and were actually like, this is the right time. So you're not really sitting there thinking, it doesn't feel right. No, no, I mean, it made me, it made me cry. You know, I mean, those last shows, it, it, it was an emotional experience. And I don't think it could be that, that's so affecting if it wasn't the right thing to do. Yeah. I mean, you know, it definitely, you know, is something I look back on with an incredible fondness and, and um, a deep respect for, uh, especially to the people who gave up their time to kind of to follow us, to, to buy our records, you know, to come to the shows. I mean, that's, you know, in, you know, I know a lot of bands say it and people say it, but, I mean, it's just phenomenal. I mean, from the point of view that I can recall now of being that kid in my teens watching that audience you know, for Pearl Jam play, I can be on the other end of the stick being on that stage looking out at that audience and just, you know, feeling very thankful and grateful that anybody gave that much of a crap about what we did Yeah. to invest a part of their lives for it, you know? I mean, it's, it's an investment. It is an investment. I mean, and it's... It still it, it still blows me away. So when people tweet me or, or message me or anything like that, I mean, where I am right now, where I live right now, nobody knows me from the, the farmer living next door. So yeah, I don't get bothered about it at all. But um, you know, when somebody you know reflects on an album that we did or how much or a story or anything like that, it's it's it is nice and. Um, you know, you, you can't help but feel grateful for it. So are you still, even though you're away from us now and your life's very different, are you still putting pen to paper? Are you still sitting there with an acoustic guitar and writing? Or are you just happy with your uh, horror films? Uh, oh, I'd love your... to say yes, but I'm not. No. Um, I'll be honest. I mean, I, I it's probably been about, um, I think, a good two years since I've, since I've picked up a guitar now. Wow. Um, 
Yeah, I know. It's and uh, it's probably going to be disheartening to some to people who are into, who are into anything related to funeral for a friend because so so many people were were literally waiting to see what was going to come after, but nothing really has to. I said my piece. I mean, I don't. I mean, I'm not driven to 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 write music at the moment. I mean, I never say that I'm not going to eventually do something with it. I mean, I've flirted with so many different things. I did. I've learned the ins and outs of you know electronic music i've dabbled with that over the last couple of years you know working how synthesizers work you know you know different levels of synthesis and modular synthesis and everything and that's fascinated me um but now i'm just i've got my little i've got a part my my work i've got my my life here got my animals i look after i'm currently nursing baby hedgehogs um, through their first um, encroaching um, hibernation period, which is going to sound very weird to a lot of people. <laughs> it's not very rock and roll. Um, but this is this is the thing. I mean, I've got so many things, and I've always been an animal lover. I've been a strong advocate for um, animal welfare. So for me, it's just a it's just a part of who I am. So that's kind of what my my energy is driven to at the moment. Uh, I moved out of the UK to Germany, um, getting to grips with, a, a, you know, life living in a different country. You know, I love my movies. I'm, I'm reconnecting with the, the cinephile um, of my youth in a big way. These are all things that kind of slip to the wayside when, because of funeral, that I've now got a bit more time to kind of lend to them a little bit, you know. And, um, and I'm obviously, I'm older, so... The need to get out and about and throw myself on a stage is lessened ever so slightly by my encroaching 40th birthday. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jumping off that drum kit would probably take about 10 minutes now. If, to climb up on it would probably take <laughs> a while. I mean, um, the stuff, I just think of the stuff that I used to do on stage and it's just, oh God, my back already hurts thinking about it. Exactly. Um, yeah, but I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm stoked. I mean, I'm a very content person. I mean... And I, I, I just, and I'm very grateful for everything that came before it. And now I've just, you know, my main focus is to concentrate on what's, what's coming up. I think it's been an amazing story and it's not unfortunate. I know there'll be some people that will see this on the Funeral for a Friend Twitter page, your own, mine, and probably be like, oh, this might be him telling us that we're going to get that tour or <laughs> a Greatest Hits album or... And it's, I, I, the thing know. is, I never say never. I mean, I've said it before. I mean, like I said, I mean, the door is. If we, for some, if the spark to create something new is reignited, and we all decide that there's something new we want to add to the story, if you're not for a friend, then that's always an option. So yeah. I never say never, but it could be a little while. Yeah, and we'll leave it as that. I think that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> and until then there's going to be lots of hedgehogs having a better life lots of horror films watched and a nice peaceful life which is what you've earned yeah i mean i pre i mean i think i'm i'm you know I, I like my space and growing up in the valleys i mean in the in the rural life i mean this where i am now is just is is, is bliss really and um yeah Bring it on. Bring on bliss. Come on. So there it is. There's my interview with me and Matt from Funeral for a Friend. And I think it's a great interview. I'm not just saying that because it's my interview, but the way that Matt opens up and is so honest and so trusting in me and talks so much from the heart about what it's like to be in a band. And not just all the highs, but, 
he's very real. He tells you it's not always great and there's times that it's difficult. And to give you that kind of perspective from the inside of the band, I think it's important. And it was it was fascinating listening back for me when I was doing the edit. And I think the story behind it all is really good. Sometimes you do interviews and people just want to answer the question and move on. But the way that flowed and the way that we got kind of get a picture from the very start until right now is it's very, very interesting. And for me, I'm I'm very proud of this one. So thanks again, Matt. You're an absolute legend. Anyone that hasn't listened to Funeral for a Friend, hopefully this means you now go and check them out. They are on Spotify. They are on Amazon. They are on um, Apple Music. So go and check them out and let me know what you think. You know, hook me up. You know, I've got my markandme.com website on there. There's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, email. I read and respond to everything I get. And, you know, I'm proud of that. And I'll never, ever not get back to you. So please let me know what you think of the episodes. This isn't a shameless plug, but I have a Patreon. The reason I have this is it brings in money. It doesn't mean I make any money off this podcast. It all goes straight back into the podcast itself. Allows me to travel, conduct more and more interviews, which means more and more episodes for you. So it's win-win. And on there you can sign up for as little as sort of... It's a dollar, which with the exchange rate, which is pretty shit at the moment. It's about 80p. But hey, that is not expensive and cheaper than a can of Red Bull. I know that's not a plug, but if Red Bull you're listening, you want to send me some energy drinks, hey, send them along. In the meantime, guys, I'll be back in a week's time. Stay safe, listen to bands, especially if you know for a friend, promote the episodes, and yeah, just take care of yourself, and I'll speak to you all in a week's time. Yes.